Support for this episode of Judaism Unbound comes from the Ashman Family JCC in Palo Alto, California, whose vision is to be the architects of the Jewish future. The Ashman Family JCC empowers you to experience Jewish paths toward a life of joy, purpose, and meaning through innovative Jewish learning and wellness programs, community building, and initiatives to develop the next generation of Jewish leaders. Learn more at www.paloaltojcc.org. This is Judaism Unbound, episode 318, Kosher Prosciutto. Welcome back, everyone. I'm Dan Liebenson. And I'm Lex Rofberg. And today we build on our episode last week that looked at vegetarianism and Jewish eating. And today we're talking to two people who have created what they call a vegan kosher butcher shop and deli in Rochester, New York. Now, we've been looking at and thinking about this distinction between keeping kosher and eating Jewish, or Jewish eating, or Israelite eating, I guess, because in our first episode, we talked about what Jews were eating in biblical times, and we started to understand how that was not exactly keeping kosher. And maybe Jewish eating in the future is not exactly keeping kosher either. So today, we're going to continue to discuss all this with our guests, Rob Knaip and Nora Rubel. They are the co-creators of Grass Fed, Rochester, New York's neighborhood vegan butcher shop and deli. Their motto is plant-based protein for the people. Grass-Fed offers delicious small batch handcrafted vegan meats made from good plant-based ingredients. If you look at their menu, you could find all kinds of things that you might expect to find at a kosher butcher. You can find corned beef, you can find brisket, you can find pastrami, roast beef, You can also find some things that we tend to think of as more Jewish these days, like we had our conversation with the folks from One Table, like Israeli-style food, so you can find shawarma there. But you can also find things that people don't typically think of as things that are found in a kosher butcher, like ham and sliced bacon. All of this is kosher. How? Because it's vegan. It's not really meat, but it sure tastes like it. So we're really interested in having this conversation about what we mean by kosher, what we mean by Jewish foods, with our two guests today. Our first guest, Rob Knipe, is the first ever butcher to be a guest on Judaism Unbound that we know of. Rob Knipe is originally from New Jersey, and as a former omnivore, he seeks to create delicious, cruelty-free versions of the meats he previously enjoyed in his New Jersey life. Sharing his creations with his adopted city of Rochester is a dream realized. Our second guest, Nora Rubel, is the Jane and Alan Batkin Professor of Jewish Studies at the University of Rochester. Nora Rubel's work looks at the intersection of religion, food, and politics. She is one of the editors of the book Religion, Food, and Eating in North America. And in work not focused on food, she is currently working on an upcoming book to be entitled Transparent and Queering the Jewish Family on TV. So Rob Knipe, Nora Rubel, Welcome to Judaism Unbound. It is so great to have you. Thank you. So excited to be here. I wanted to start with this question about thinking about your your vegan butchery. Like, I sort of understand why one would want to have a vegan butchery, although I'd love to hear a little bit of the story of how that came about. But the real question for me is, why did you want to make it kosher? Like, particularly in a small city like Rochester, where I would imagine there aren't all that many kosher-keeping Jews, why was it something that you really wanted to do to have it be kosher? One of the reasons we thought about making it kosher is because it seemed like it would be an easy thing to do. 
And we have kosher observant people in our lives. And I know that while they would eat out maybe vegan food, they would not be able to bring it into their house. And so much of what Rob makes is meant to be cooked with as opposed to like a takeout situation or a sandwich. You know, he does do sandwiches, but, you know, the ideas that we had about this was a way of making it easy for people to cook vegan in their own homes using recipes they've had in the past. So using one of the vegan cutlets as opposed to actual chicken. So first of all, we thought that would be helpful. You see a lot more interest in vegan food in the kosher keeping community too, because in some ways it makes things a lot easier. And three, we have a pretty sizable Orthodox community here. Um, but even our reform rabbis keep kosher in their house. So this was an opportunity. The neighborhood we're in is close to a uh, modern Orthodox synagogue. And um, we just thought, you know, if it wasn't too hard to do, we would like to do it and make it as inclusive a space as possible. I, I think also the rabbi that is supervising us, he, he kind of made a, a mission to create more kosher opportunities for the congregation. He's made it very easy for us to kind of make that switch to be, you know, to make it kosher. There were probably, I want to say like five ingredients that I was using that I had to switch over just because they weren't kosher. And it wasn't like it was hard to find a substitute for that. It may be more like I can't get it locally. I may have to, you know, get it shipped in, but it wasn't, um, none of it was, was super hard to kind of make that, uh, that switch over to answer your first question. Why a vegan butchery? You know, I, I think I've, I've said before, like I didn't stop eating meat because I didn't like it. Right. I, for health reasons, for, for the environment, for the animals, right. Those are all reasons really why one would become vegan. Um, and so finding a, a, you know, a substitute that we could, we could, we could create to have kind of the dishes that we had before we became vegan was really kind of the main purpose for what, uh, you know, starting this, starting us down this path. So I'm a vegetarian. I'm not a vegan, but I'm a vegetarian. And when you're a vegetarian, and I presume also when you're a vegan, and you're also somebody who people perceive as a religious Jew or actually like a religious Jew, people love asking this is my personal experience. Do you keep vegetarian because you keep kosher or like, do you keep kosher because you were already vegetarian? Cause like, there's a lot of ways in which a lot of the kosher rules are about meat, right? Like th animals that you can and can't eat meat that you can't mix with whatever things. And by eating vegetarian, there's a way in which you sort of cover some of those bases, right? My autobiography was not that and so I, whenever I ask that question, I get to have a fun existential moment where I'm like, oh, what? Why do I? Why do I keep vegetarian? Why do I keep? And I don't know what the chicken or the egg of this situation is or which came first. Um, it's funny to mention chicken and eggs in the context of a vegan conversation. But like, I just wanted to like bring up and ask as a way of getting into this, like, what, what is kosher? What is vegan eating? Like, Vegetarian and kosher like live in the same corner of my mind and heart because like I am making these eating decisions from a place of like ethical commitment as opposed to a place of like 
stuff I like. Before I was vegetarian, I ate a, a lot of meat, really liked it. So my question to ask is like, how do you think of your butchery? How do you think of the the like, I don't know, service you're doing to the community? Like, is this is this serving vegan folks? Is this serving the Jewish community? Is it both? How do all of these ethical commitments that are also tied to like Jewish topics or questions, how do those flow together? And what might they reflect about like bigger questions about what it is to eat Jewishly or eat ethically? Start by saying like when we first started, we were doing uh, an order form. On the order form, we would ask questions of people, uh, you know, beyond like, what would you like? Uh, so, you know, uh, are you a vegetarian? Are you a vegan? Are you just someone trying to reduce your, your meat consumption? We found that over half of the people that were ordering from us actually fell into the vegetarian or uh, meat eater category. So it, we, the, the appeal, it seems, uh, what we were doing was more people that you know, kind of were interested in the idea of like what it meant to be vegan, but maybe weren't ready to kind of um, jump totally in. Uh, we jokingly refer to ourselves as like vegan training wheels uh, in that respect, <laughs> right? So that, you know, I can give you a product that's similar to something that you were using, and then you can kind of still, again, enjoy what you you had before and not have to worry about buying some special ingredients that you're not sure whether or not you're ever gonna, you're going to like or you're going to use. Um, I think what we're able to do, rather than kind of what you can find commercially right now, which I will say, we've been vegan for six years. The amount of stuff that's available commercially, like in the grocery store, has grown immensely in that short six year period. Like I can't, I can't imagine what it must have been like twenty years ago, where you're like looking, I guess, at like lentils like that's that's the only thing you yeah. could get in the store that was vegan than you were sure of um you know so i think we're able to kind of create more things that are appealing to a broader community of people again vegan or not vegan it could be just the lunch meats that we have the deli meats that we have or it could be um, during the holidays the the special roasts that we make that are uh, specifically for that holiday i think the appeal of what we have is that that selection and the idea of you know not having like being like well i can't have this it's more like when can i when can i get that thing that you're going to make that i can have. I had a guy come into the store today and I had talked to him before about how I was making a, a prosciutto. And so that's think, a kosher prosciutto, right? It was kosher. Yeah. <laughs> and before he came in and uh, he, he's been asking me about it and I just, I've been meaning to kind of workshop it a little bit more before I, I release it. And so I, I felt bad. I hadn't done that yet. So I, I sliced him a little bit and I gave it to him. And he's like, I'm going to put this on a pizza. It's going to be amazing. I'm like, oh, you let me know how that goes. I, I have not tried it on a pizza. I cannot speak to how that will work. He came in then today and was like, I need more of that prosciutto. He's like, I need it. I'll pay whatever. Like, just please let me have more of the I'm like, okay, yes, that's fine. So I think there's a lot to be said for like the, the, the variety and the kind of the different things that we, we can make and that we can offer that people are excited about. I think there's a lot of joy, which is kind of lovely to see. I mean, there's a lot of excitement. Rob and I love to cook and we love to eat. 
And, you know, you go through periods of time where you either can't afford to eat out as much as you would like to. So you learn to make things at home or COVID, right? Where nobody went out ever again. And so I'm at a point now where I never feel like I'm missing out on anything. I, you know, I'll get bon appetit in the mail and I'll look through it and I never think, oh, unfortunately I can't have that. I'll say, hey, Rob, can we figure this out? Can you make this? And he usually says, yeah, sure. You know, give me a little time. And so I think that we're, you know, providing a certain amount of goods that aren't really available in other places. And yes, there are vegan options commercially in the store, but I think what Rob is doing is kind of creating things a little more um, interesting and a little more diverse than what you can find. We're both from New Jersey originally, and I think that the Jewish deli and the Italian deli are both kind of big factors in our formative parts of our lives. And so that's why I think you can see like a killer Reuben and a killer Italian salami sandwich on the menu. Could you just talk a little bit about what's involved in making vegan meats? Like, how did you figure that out? How do you, you know, Nora's been talking about how, you know, she comes in and asks you to make some new kind of thing and you just like, yeah, I could uh, work on it. Like, how do you do that? Yeah, well, it goes back to like before I became vegan. So one of the things that I really kind of enjoyed was when Passover came around. So when the Passover came around, we would try to have this uh, elaborate meal that we could serve to uh, Nora's family who would come up uh, and visit. And I really kind of enjoyed the challenge of like, okay, well, normally I would make this, but I can't have, you know, flour in this. So how can I do the same thing without, you know, that? So once I became vegan, it was like that to the 12th degree, right? Because it's like, (laughs) okay, well, you can't have butter, you can't have eggs, you can't have meat, you can't have dairy, you can't, no cheese, right? So um, I, I enjoyed the kind of sitting down and, and and working through how to mimic the things that you're that you're taking out without actually missing the things that are that are gone. Um, the first thing that I made, I can't remember, we were coming back from somewhere and we kind of all agreed that we we're going to fend for ourselves. And I decided that was the day that I was going to dip my toe in and try to make um, some seitan. I had some vital wheat gluten that I've been I'd bought months before and been avoiding. And I found a, a video on YouTube that was like a um, father and a very cute daughter. And they're like, we're going to make vegan chicken soup. And I was like, perfect. Let's, let's go ahead. We're going to go with that. And they made just a very simple dough out of the, the vita wheat gluten and water. They didn't flavor it at all. And the idea was that you'd make your soup, you'd take the dough, you'd break off little pieces, throw it into the soup, let it simmer. And it would, it would cook in the soup and then somehow magically absorb all the flavor from the soup. And then it would taste like chicken and you'd be like, great. And, um, you know, the video ended with very happy looking little girl as she was eating. It was like, tastes just like chicken soup. And, you know, I guess you just can't trust kids because when I made it, it was disgusting. It was the worst thing I think I ever had. And it was super disappointing. And I was then that was just like, I don't know. Like, why did I even try this? This doesn't make any sense. Like, like clearly I'm doing something wrong. 
And we went to a, a restaurant in town here and the woman makes a really nice like gyro, seitan gyro meat. And so I was like paying and I was just like, I, I told her I'd like tried to make seitan and it was awful uh, when I tried and like, you know, jokingly was kind of like, but, you know, secretly crossing my fingers. I was like, maybe I could do like a, you know, a, a seitan internship here. I could like see how you make it. So I could try to see what I could do to, to have the similar thing that I would like to eat as opposed to whatever it was I had before. And she was very blunt and used some colorful language to essentially say that seitan is bread and you just have to like really season it. And I was like, oh, okay. And it kind of like, I don't know, it kind of, I felt like it gave me permission to be like, okay, now go play with it. Like go read other recipes, see what other people do. And I think that a lot of it now having, having done this, you know, as a business since October of 2019, I think a lot of it is, um, it's as much of the, like the recipe as it is like techniques, right. That you, that you kind of pick up where you're like, okay, so if I want it, like I made roast beef. And so to me, from what I remember of eating roast beef, roast beef has a very different texture from like ham. So there was a lot of trial and error. How can I get that texture with that versus like having the taste be right, but not texture wise be right. So it was, a, it, it's a, a kind of, I really enjoy that aspect of like playing around to see that, like, okay, so I've got this part, but how do I make sure that all of it is what I'm, what in my head I have pictured. Nora, I actually wanted to pick up on what you're talking about. And also I think on what Rob said earlier about the vegan butchery being a kind of vegan training wheels, because I'm interested in this question of just food and how it's functioned for Jews. And, and I think that maybe this is kind of an interesting analogy that actually helps us think about Jewish food in other ways, because I'm actually not a huge meat eater. So I'm not vegetarian or vegan, but I'm not a big meat eater. I don't love meat. You know, I don't really feel particularly drawn to meat. So I'm kind of like, when I see a vegan meat restaurant, I'm kind of like, I probably wouldn't go there because I don't really like meat that much. Like if I want to have, you know, vegetables, I, I, you know, go to the salad restaurant, right? Or something like that. And, and yet I know that there's so many people who want that. And so I'm kind of thinking about the training wheels dimension and, and wondering whether you see your restaurant and also whether maybe Jewish Jewish food, Jewish restaurants work this way, you know, a hundred years ago in America as kind of this sort of transitional thing that allows people who are going from one place or one way of eating and they're kind of moving towards another place or another way of eating and they can have a transitional kind of way of doing both for a while. And then like in the next generation, something quite different happens. And is that what you sort of imagine this to be about? Is that is that a kind of accurate description of how Jewish food has worked, et cetera? So this is a gateway drug? Situation. Yeah, something I was like going to use that yeah. language. That's yeah, that's great. And a gateway to what exactly? But yes, cruelty-free eating, my friend. Um, yeah, no, I mean, I think we didn't eat that much meat before either, and it's kind of funny that when Rob started down this path, uh, we started eating a lot more meat um, in quotations, uh, and it was a lot because I didn't grow up eating a lot of meat. I was a vegetarian for a long time, but 
going from being a vegetarian or someone who doesn't eat a lot of meat to being a vegan is very, very different uh, because you don't have cheese, you don't have eggs. I think I originally thought that giving up cheese was going to be impossible. It was not. And there's also a lot of really good vegan cheese. I think you realize how much egg is in everything. So you really do need to create sort of main foods. The question of whether or not this is a transition from eating meat to not eating meat, going from eating meat to eating fake meat to then eating just vegetables. Um, I'm not sure. I think what what's happening is we're creating food that tastes good, that people are more likely to eat and come to the conclusion, hopefully, that why would I kill a chicken if I knew that I could have the same meal and it tastes as good? Isn't that an attractive idea? But yes, I mean, what will the next generation do? A lot of kids who are raised vegan or vegetarian have no memory, right? No nostalgia uh, towards meat. So I don't know. I mean, I think good, you know, but I don't think that we're going to have some sort of magical moment, you know, in the next decade or so where everybody stops wanting to eat meat. We would rather they ate our stuff. Yeah, well, no, I mean, I think that you'll be in business forever because there will always <laughs> be these people that are leaving the meat eating world and and moving through that that transition. I, I'm just kind of one. I'm just thinking about like the, that next generation, and and I'm thinking about if I never ate meat before, how do I relate to food? You know, and and like because I was reading about what you do, Rob, and and how you know there's there's a whole thing about like, and part of why I think impossible burgers have been seen as kind of a next wave is because they somehow figured out a chemical to put in, or I don't know if it's a chemical, but something that him, that it kind of really tastes like meat in a different way. And so on the one hand, that feels like, yeah, of course, that's critical in terms of people that are, that were previously meat eaters, but I kind of wonder for that next generation, is it is it something deep in humans that we need to have that taste or or in that next generation? Would we imagine that that maybe you would just say, oh, we can make all kinds of interesting compounds with non meat items. So many things are possible beyond meat. That's just one of the many tastes in the world. I mean, it's an interesting question, right? For a person that hasn't doesn't have that connection with meat in their life. What's the appeal of a, uh, you know, a fake meat product? Nora touched on it briefly. Like the idea of nostalgia, I think plays um, pretty heavily in kind of what it is that we do. Um, whether it's the nostalgia for, you know, I, I have a customer who was telling me like they remember going to the Jewish deli or to the butcher on, you know, in New York, with their grandparents and like going in and the, getting all the, whatever they needed for the the week or, you know, from there and like that whole experience. And so, you know, coming into the shop now, they're like having flashbacks to like, oh, that totally reminds me of, of that. We see that our, you know, we call them event meats, right? The, um, the Thanksgiving, you know, turkey roast that we have, you know, what we offer for, um, the holidays at the end of the year, right? Those kind of, those meats that bring, you know, people to a table uh, with a large group, right? Those are the things that kind of create the nostalgia. Um, and probably for those people that maybe don't eat meat or 
haven't or like have been vegan, uh, a lot of the people that come in and shop for those meats are like the parents, right? The people that don't need that, but want those other people to be at their table. So they are, you know, reaching out to try to make their table as open and as welcoming as they can to try to help um, create those memories, right, with, with their family and with the other people that are, that are around them. Hopefully, then that means, you know, 70 years from now, uh, you know, when I'm still, you know, doing this, knock on wood, um, you know, that person who didn't eat meat, it's like, oh, wait, it's Hanukkah, I'm going to need my my uh, my brisket from grass fed because I remember growing up and having the brisket, you know? So I think, I think there's a, a, the nostalgia is not only the one like thinking back to what you knew before, but also maybe with ones that you're, um, you know, adopting as you're moving forward. I'm noticing a few things about how the, about the language that you're using and I really want to sit with it and also connect it to this whole impossible meat thing. I'll, I'll out myself. I eat a ton of fake meat and I absolutely am the person that sounds like a minority in this conversation, um, including Dan. Like I, I do absolutely like want the sensation or like things that are close to meat in my life, even though I don't have the actual meat. Like that's, that's me. I'm, I'm like the target audience of, of this stuff. And if I were in Rochester, I'd be at your place all the time. But like, I, I want to ask kind of a broad question, which is like, what is food doing? Right? Like what, what does food do? Like nostalgia just came up and like, why are we talking about nostalgia when we're talking about food? Right? Like somebody who isn't me, I, I happen to crave like the actual taste of of what feels to me like meat. And I and I'll be honest, at this point I experience impossible meat beyond me. I experience it as me. Like I I I'm not totally convinced that if you gave me a selection of close to meat meats that are not using animals and a selection of meats that are from animals, that I would be able to tell the difference. But that actually gets at some of the language you're using. Nora, you mentioned the phrase fake meat. And right. Rob, you've actually at a few points not used the term fake or artificial. I don't, I'm not saying you necessarily disagree with each other, but Rob, you just said prosciutto and you didn't say like artificial prosciutto or imitation prosciutto or meatless prosciutto. You just said prosciutto. And that's actually, that's a claim. And I want to bring up that claim because I agree with it. Like I have arguments not only with my Jewish friends, this happens to come up Jewishly a lot, but I have a lot of non-Jewish friends. And because I'm a vegetarian, I will occasionally talk about impossible meat or beyond meat as meat, just without modifying it. And we'll get into like a, a big old argument with each other. Like, is it really meat? Is Is meat defined as the set of things that trace themselves to animal origin, or if something sort of tastes close enough to meat, is it meat? And so I asked that question in specific, but I also ask it because it gets at how food is not just about like the literal ingredients on the plate. It's something bigger than that. So like, how would you approach that question of like, is this meat? Are we a, are we an imitation meat butchery? Are we just a butchery? H how do you go about those kinds of questions? I rely heavily on the, the, the sign above the door, right? That says grass fed vegan butcher shop. So like it, everything that's in the store is vegan, right? Um, I, when we started, I kind of made the conscious decision that I wasn't going to go the route of like silly spellings of things. <laughs> like, you know, there are only so many times you can put a Q in a word. Uh, I, I figured <laughs> I'll just 
it's bacon, right? I, what I make, it's intended to be bacon. It's supposed to, in your mind, take the place of bacon. So we'll say it is bacon, right? And then it kind of was just the approach that I decided early on that I was going to take. And, and we do get questions. I mean, when people come in, a lot of times people are like, and part, it could be a vegan person or someone who is not vegan. Uh, but it's just like, is this vegan? Which I'm like, yes, everything is. Vegan. So it, yeah, I, I just, I, I kind of felt that there was no, I didn't, I didn't need to kind of label it fake meat because it's, you know, I don't think someone who, again, going back to bacon, someone who's like expecting real bacon would not look at my bacon and be like, that's not bacon. There would be like, oh, what? I thought that was absolutely bacon. Like it's, um, it's more of a, you know, if I made a painting of, of bacon, right? Like you'd be like, okay, that's not real bacon, right? We, we can all agree. So I, <laughs> I kind of didn't feel the I didn't feel like it was necessary to kind of... It's the of... image of bacon. To quote the image of God, it's the image of bacon. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> or perhaps right. a graven image. Is it a graven image? The other thing is that meat eaters, animal meat eaters, use these words like prosciutto and bacon and, um, uh, you know, ham, steak. Those are words that are used to suggest a type of flavor and a and a type of a dish, right? They're not using the word pig or cow. I mean, you have chicken, right? That's kind of the one place where that go where where that's used. But in a way, these words are meant to make you feel better. I think about not eating like an animal or, or about eating an animal. Um, so. You know, the word meat has been used to talk about nuts um, in the same way that, you know, there's all of these arguments about can we call oat milk milk? Can we call it, you know, do we have to say it's, you know, can't we can't you find another word? Can't you find use the word beverage, even though nut milk also has a long history of being referred to as milk? So we don't really bother ourselves with that so much, I guess, is the thought which I think brings up this question of impossible pork, which is just such a fascinating argument that kind of fills me with a lot of feeling, particularly because, you know, a few years ago, there was a raid at a kosher slaughterhouse in Iowa, in Postville. And there was a movement primarily among conservative Jews to create what they were calling a, an ethical hecture. It, the hexer is the term that's used to claim that something is a kosher product. And there were a lot of Orthodox rabbis who said, you know, kosher has to, it doesn't have to do with the ethics, right? Yes, we believe that workers should be treated well. Yes, we don't think animals should be treated inhumanely, but you can't change what kosher means. So it means literally, you know, the meat was slaughtered a certain way or it was supervised a certain way. And so I think it's interesting that suddenly the OU is deciding that they can choose not to give a hexure to something that is clearly a kosher product um, because they don't like the name of it. Kosher crab and kosher shrimp has been sold in kosher stores for decades now. Um, so I'm kind of unsure why this is 
a claim that's being made right now. Yeah, and so just to clarify that for for folks who didn't hear about this uh, situation, but the OU, which is the main Orthodox certification body for kosher food, uh, declined to give kosher certification to Impossible Pork, even though they had previously given kosher certification to things like bacos, bacon bits, and things like that that also have names that are of things that are not kosher. So it was kind of a confusing situation. My understanding was that they thought it was kind of in some way a bridge too far to call it impossible pork. And maybe that comes, Nora, to what you were saying earlier about that, you know, something about saying uh, kosher bacon in their mind. I don't think this is true. It doesn't strike me as true. But I think in their mind, bacon somehow is a little bit of a euphemism, like you were saying. Uh, but whereas they hear pork as pig. You know, and uh, they don't hear it in, in quite the same euphemism, even if it is. And somehow it's like they did have an idea in their mind that it's different to say kosher pig than kosher bacon. I mean, and others have made some defenses of that nature, like to come into this question of like, well, what is keeping kosher really about? Is keeping kosher really about not eating certain animals or is keeping kosher about not eating certain foods or certain types of foods, whether they're, and I, I, I have to confess that this argument was made by one of our previous guests, David Svi Kalman, and I don't quite understand it. But I think that to some extent, and this is a little bit about what I actually wanted to explore with you both, you know, sort of on the pro and on the con side of, of what you're doing, uh, the kind of um, deep-seated feelings that people have that are irrational about food. I know what you mean about this this kind of inner disgust that sometimes creeps up. So I have never kept kosher except for when I was a vegetarian and I guess now um, as a vegan because I don't eat any of the things. Um, but I was a trafe lover and I loved shellfish. I really loved prosciutto. I was not a ham person, but this prosciutto that Rob is bringing into the world is like, it's a mitzvah what what he's doing um but, <laughs> but i you know i used to have a little like because i work in jewish food and because i think about food all the time i never kept kosher but i always felt like i thought about it a lot you know and i was weirded out by cutting boards that used both things you know and becoming vegan really kind of just don't care where that knife has been unless it like was cutting garlic right it doesn't really matter but Rob originally started doing his work in a ice cream shop. He was uh, sharing space with a local ice cream company called Eat Me. Um, and they're now <laughs> uh, completely vegan. They were sort of in the process of moving towards being completely vegan while he was using their space. And it kind of freaked me out, this idea of him making sausages in a place where they were making ice cream. Like there's just something about that that felt so not kosher. But I had to remind myself that none of this is real, right? This is all just nuts and uh, soy and um, other flavors, but nothing was actually, no meat and milk were actually in contact with each other because no meat and milk actually existed. What frustrates me is the unevenness of the response, right? So it's fine with me if there is a kind of visceral distaste for the idea of eating pork, right? That, that somehow this poor pig has become like the maligned animal in 
Jewish culture and uh, dietary laws, right? But I do get frustrated when the same people that refuse to do a an ethical hecture because they say it's about the ingredients, and then all of a sudden turn around and say, well, no, that's not all it is, right? So maybe it's not all it is, but um, it does seem incongruous. So one thing that we've talked about on this podcast at different points, I mean, what's funny is we're just now getting to like Jewish food as like the core topic of a unit of episodes in our podcast. But we've talked about Jewish food a bazillion times in the context of other things, because it turns out people have very strong feelings about this particular topic and it weaves its way into others. But one thing we've talked about is Jewish food. We, t- we talk about it as Jewish food, but for – I never want to say like all of human history, but for a, a very long time – Jewish food has not just been food eaten and created by Jews. There have been a lot of folks who aren't Jewish who are part of that process, whether that's creating the food, farming the food, serving the food, being co-consumers of the food. That's been always there. And I think somehow we think it's novel when non-Jews today, I mean, my favorite deli growing up is now owned by a Christian man, but it still has, you know, the cell-raised soda and the all the, the Ashkenazi Jewish foods that one might expect. And he actually, like, has a very positive relationship with that history and, like, sees the preservation of it as part of his project. And so I was curious to ask the two of you, like, on the Jewish and not Jewish front, Rob, in some of the articles about the two of you, it mentions like Presbyterian raised, Rob Knipe, and Nora Rubel, Jewish studies scholar. And I was curious, like, how do you uh, how do you relate to the project of, you know, a, a kosher butchery um, coming from an intersection of not Jewishness, but also like being I, I don't want it to sound like I'm saying you're not part of Jewish life or part of the Jewish community like you certainly are. But I was curious to hear both from you and from Nora how you think about the question of like non-Jews being an integral part of what we term Jewish food. Not that we eat them, but just being part of it. Right. True. Uh, yeah. <laughs> it, again, it goes back to where I grew up. I grew up in, in Cherry Hill, New Jersey, um, which has a, a large Jewish presence in you know, in the community. So the idea of a Jewish deli or a a diner that's kind of geared towards, you know, it has like, quote, unquote, Jewish food in it was not something that was um, strange to me, you know, growing up. So making that food, I think is, you know, something that is kind of a callback to those places that, you know, I, I may have gone to growing up. It's something that is almost sought after uh, with the community that we're in now, right? As far as like kosher options go in our community, there is literally one other place that actually offers uh, kosher food. They happen to be an actual butcher, uh, <laughs> you know, so uh, <laughs> we... Just down the street. Oh, oh, just down the street, yeah. A couple blocks But, but you're, you're an actual so, butchery. Yeah. Yes. Yes. I I have the the slicer. I love that you're avoiding the supersessionist language of we have superseded the old butchers in the context of a Christian Jewish question. This is great. (laughs) The uh, yeah. Well, we try to rise above. No. The uh, it it, you know I think I think that the community definitely um, 
looks for something um, that they can they can they can eat and like if I can provide that uh, you know it's not it really was not a huge transition to make that switch to to becoming a kosher uh, business uh, for us definitely so you know again it was something where it's like why why not. So the kosher bakery that we have in town is actually owned by non-Jews now. It was owned by a Jewish family for a really long time. And then it was bought, taken over by um, a non-Jewish baker um, who's actually in the process of selling it right now. But he's holding out because he doesn't want there not to be a kosher bakery in the town. So the sale is taking a while. Um, but I do think that's interesting because he recognizes like how important it is to have a kosher bakery for the community. And he is not Jewish also. Um, so that's an example of what you're suggesting. Um, it would be ridiculous to think that non-Jews have no place in Jewish food. I remember going to Israel every other year for Passover with my family and we would have our Seder in the Hilton Hotel because it was such a large group. And certainly, in order to be able to enjoy the Seder, there are non-Jews preparing the food and serving it. We don't live in a shtetl. We live among other people. And they're part of our community, regardless of whether or not some people would prefer it to be otherwise. So we're closing out. and. Um... Like I said, I mean, we've taken quite a while over the years of our podcast to get to, you know, 300 and whatever episode we're on now and actually center Jewish food as the centerpiece of a, of, of a unit of conversations. Assuming that was a good decision, which I hope we agree it is, why was it a good decision? <laughs> like, what, why does, just to close us out, like, why should we take food seriously? What is it about this? topic that we should understand not only is something we use as like fuel for our bodies to keep existing, but actually is something that's worth learning about and exploring and thinking about deeply. Food matters tremendously to people. I think that we don't just eat to live. And I think when you're talking about religious practice and religious culture, so much of tradition is relating to the ancestors, as some would say, trying to create meaning and story. And I think a lot of food tells a story, whether it's the eating of it, the making of it, the sharing it with people, tying it to holidays, Shabbat, your parents, your grandparents. So I think that it's really important and it's something that people hold on to, even when they lose other elements of identity. Thank you both so much. I feel like we should have like all brought lunch together or something and while recording, like shared some amount of food. It feels like incomplete that we didn't actually like cap this experience with some amount of food consumption. But it makes like, a good podcast if we're all eating, right? The, the, the that's what everybody loves. Yeah, we should really, just yeah, chomp yeah. right into the... Uh, uh, yeah, so for listeners, if you ever, ever want to hear <laughs> the sound of me chewing or slurping water, um, I actually have that audio that I delete because I'm sometimes <laughs> snacking during interviews. Nobody wants that, but in case you do. So um, <laughs> thank you both so much. 
the rest of the conversation was more interesting than me talking about chewing. But thank you both so much for joining us for it and bringing just great wisdom. Thank you so much for having us. And thank you so much to all of you out there for listening. We hope you've enjoyed this conversation and we hope that you'll tune in again in the future. We especially hope that in the near future, in the next few weeks, you'll continue listening to our mini series of episodes all about Jewish food, about its past, its present, its future, what Jewish food is, what it isn't, who gets to decide, all of those amazing questions that we've been diving into so far. We've got more of it coming your way. So definitely be on the lookout each of the next few Fridays for those new episodes. And we want to close out this episode in the same way that we always do, by encouraging you to be in touch with us. And there are a wide variety of ways for you to do that. First, you can head to our Facebook or Instagram or Twitter pages. All of those are at Judaism Unbound. Second, you can go to our website, JudaismUnbound.com. Third, you can email us at dan at judaismunbound.com or lex at judaismunbound.com. And the last request we like to make is that we deeply appreciate any amount of financial donation that you're able to send our way. And you can do that on either a monthly recurring basis or just as a one-time gift via judaismunbound.com slash donate. So thank you so much for listening. And with that, this has been Judaism Unbound. <laughs>